So for me, it's it's baseball flow means that you're you're sequencing really well, right? That you're transitioning from one athletic posture to the next, and also that you're actually be, being able to bring that into the skill into the baseball field or the softball field. Uh, we ready for war? Never back down. Give me some more. We came for the title, killing the game, dead on the rise. Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. I hope you had a great weekend celebrating Mother's Day. I know I did. I had a great time hanging out with my mom on Mother's Day. Uh, speaking of podcasting, I actually created a, a, I did a podcast episode just highlighting all my favorite memories of my mom, and then I gave it to her for her Mother's Day gift. So that was that was pretty cool, and, and it was a ton of fun too. So it was just fun always hanging out with with your mom. They're the best. Moms are the best. In today's episode, we have Dr. Ismael Gallo. So Dr. Gallo has been on the podcast already. He, in episode number 268, he was on the podcast. And if you haven't listened to that one, I'd listen to that one before this one, just because we build off of the previous episode in this current episode. But Dr. Gallo is a, is a former professional baseball player, but he's a physical therapist. So he's, he's played at a very high level, as I said, in professional baseball. And now he helps players move better. He's a, he's a physical therapist, and he created something called Baseball Flows, where he teaches players of all ages to move more efficiently. So a lot of times we talk about how certain players have inefficient mechanics, whether it be pitching, hitting, fielding, all these different things. And so what Dr. Gallo does is he takes the bat away, takes the ball away, and he, he teaches them how to move properly without having a, a batter ball or anything in their hands and that when time they do that enough time and time again they start moving more efficiently once they do pick up the bat or start throwing a ball again so it's really cool stuff um, he's he he's blown up since the last time we've had him on the podcast and a, a ton of different college baseball and softball teams are now working with him and, and as, as much as high school teams and youth teams and things like that so great stuff if you and Enjoy this podcast, which I hope you do. Please share it with somebody. That's how we're going to continue to grow this podcast and grow this show is through word of mouth. So if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy this episode, if you get some sort of value out of it, share it with somebody. That's the only thing I asked. Don't run ads on the show. I lose money doing the podcast every month, and I have for the last five and a half years. It's not about that for me. I just I enjoy doing it first off, and I think... I hope it provides some value. So if you enjoy it, please share it with somebody. Okay, here we go. Dr. Ismael Gallo. Yeah, this is my time. I grind and shine. I put in the work and push the line. I'm holding my crown. I'm never back down. All right, now we now welcome on Dr. Gallo to the podcast. Back to the podcast, I would say. Uh, return guest. Dr. Gallo, appreciate you coming on the show again today. Ah, super excited, man. Thanks for having me on again. Round two. Round two. So for those listening, if you if you haven't, Dr. Gallo's already been on the podcast. It was episode number 268. I'd recommend going back and listening to that episode before you listen to this episode, because this episode builds on top of the previous episode. We get a little bit more in depth in this episode. And so uh, he did, Dr. Gallo did a great job just building the, the foundation and, and kind of just educating everyone on the basics in episode 268, the first one. This one's going to be a little bit more in depth. But Dr. Gell, what, what have you been up to since the last time we had you on the podcast? I mean, that was, you know, that was a while ago. It was like a year ago. 
man, what haven't I been up to? You know, it's one of those where I think you kind of put me on the map with the last podcast, which was awesome. You know, I actually want to thank you for that. Is oh, you're the you. basically the first podcast that gave me an opportunity to bring out my thoughts, to bring out the program I've been working on for so many years, and to really develop something uh, in the community. So I just want to thank you for that. Uh, but since then, it kind of blew up. So we've developed, I think last time when I was on, we're doing it more on the website. Now we actually have an app. So we have a phone app that, that teams can get on, that player individual players can get on. Uh, so we have an entire program now that will kind of guide them through them, progress them. Uh, and it's based on a monthly subscription. So that's a little bit different. So I've been busy, busy building that and then build, uh, real busy onboarding teams. So I've onboarded some college teams, uh, some real good teams, which is awesome. So I got a question just in terms of like the actual movement. Like I know your background, like you specialize in, in helping players move better. So when you're watching games on TV, whether it be baseball, whether it be softball, and you, and you see a hitter in the box, uh, and do you watch and try to identify – where they're breaking down and, and why their mechanics aren't as efficient as they could be? Like, what are you watching when you're watching games? So usually when I watch a game, I, I have a tendency of looking at the entire movement. You know, I, I don't really, I don't want to bias myself into like, are they hinging, uh, or whether landing with the front foot, uh, whether getting their barrel. I mean, things like that, that everybody kind of, kind of looks at. Cause I feel like we all have a little bit of a bias on how people move. And sometimes you get so locked in on that bias that sometimes you don't notice the entire flow, the entire movement. Because uh, at the end of the day, for me, a baseball swing or someone that's throwing a pitch or even diving for a ball, it's one flow. You know, when it, when it's go time, it's one movement, it's one one timing. And it's something for me that I always look at when I see a game. And I also see how they flow with the game, right? I mean, there's some players that are just clunky. It's like a, I always look at, at movement kind of like a dance floor. Right. And you're looking at different dancers and you're going like, hey, are they all dancing together or is there one that's completely off? Uh, and for me, it's it's when teams flow together, they just kind of bond together. And all of a sudden you get this like cohesiveness of when they're turning double plays, uh, when they're cutting off, when they're doing things, they're just all kind of flowing. Same timing, same rhythm. Uh, it's fun to watch once you see a team flowing well. Uh, and it's obviously when you don't see a team, when you see a team making errors, throwing it all over the place, guys getting beat They're early on the change up late on the fastball, then you start to notice the flow and the breakdown. How do you improve that flow? For me, it's baseball flows. I think there's no better movement than to actually start sequencing your body with these developmental patterns and then starting to develop the timing, the sequencing, the energy flow that you need to when you get on the baseball field. Because I, I think sometimes what we do is we, we train one way in the facility and the gym uh, in, in the batting cage. And then when we get in the game, it's a whole different tempo, a whole different flow. And for players, that's really difficult because they're, they're, they're literally trying to figure it out on the fly. Mm. So when you're, you talked earlier about you're doing a lot of work with teams now, a lot of college teams, high school teams, travel teams. What's that, what's that system like? Because I, and I get this question on the hitting side, like how do we implement this in a team setting? So, I mean, how, how would you implement baseball flows, helping players move better in a team setting? So usually when I first started this, I started with no preconceived notions of how I wanted to implement it. Other than players had to do it frequently, they had to do it often, and they had to be consistent with it. That was the only thing. But throughout this past year, I've learned how teams are starting to use it and kind of the best practice. And for me, it's, it's the way a lot of teams are implementing that I feel work the best is some teams are using it actually before they hit. So while they're hitting BP, They'll have them do baseball flows to calibrate, to, to kind of get their sequencing, their timing, 
get the patterns right, get the flow right, and then they're actually having them perform the skill. Another way teams are using it is they also use it as recovery. So they'll use it like a cool down. You know, after practice, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that when you play a baseball game, when you practice, when you do softball, anything you do, it's stress on your body. And that stress on your body accumulates. And eventually, you like your movement system becomes corrupt. And, and all of a sudden, you start to lose that natural flow, that natural timing and sequencing uh, that you have um, naturally. So to remind everybody, what what exactly is baseball flows? Like people hear that and they're like, I don't know what that means. Like, what does it mean, baseball flows? What does flow being in flow mean? So for me, it's it's baseball flow means that you're you're sequencing really well, right? That you're transitioning from one athletic posture to the next, and also that you're actually ba- being able to bring that into the skill into the baseball field or the softball field. You know, it's one of those where it's not just, hey, guess what? I get to move really well at home. And then the patterns that I use on the field are totally different. For me, what you're going to do at home and in, in the comfort of your home, as far as the baseball flows in the program, what you're going to do in the facility, those are the same movement patterns that you're going to use on the baseball field and on the softball field to be successful. What would be an example of, of the baseball flows? Like what would be something that, that people would do at home if they're doing the program? So usually there's many examples. The The best one I could give is, is just the simple transition of being like in a 90-90 dead bug and then transitioning like into a bear crawl and just getting that flow, those spirals, those obliques, the timing. Uh, there's so much that goes into it when you do a flow that I think just behind the scenes. And maybe I'll get a little bit into some of that detail as far as like, hey, what is happening when I flow from a, like a dead bug into a bear crawl? And why is that important when I get on the baseball field? Yeah, uh, that would be my next question because I'm thinking, and I know you're you're you know, you have way more expertise when it comes to human movement. You've been studying it for you know over a decade now, and how does being on the ground and like a bear crawl help hitter standing up in the box facing a pitcher throwing 90 miles an hour? Man, whew, let me take a shot at it here, right? Okay. <laughs> no, I, I mean, just think about your body as. Um... Muscles firing at different times, different sequences, and also different intensities, right? So if, I guess the best way to explain it is if you take like a, take a muscle like a light. When it's firing really, really at 100%, it's really, really bright, and it's like a dimmer. It'll kind of turn off and turn more to like a stabilizer, and it'll kind of zoom in, zoom out, or, or kind of light up and dim depending on the what it has to do. So, for example, if you were to look at a hitter and look at it from that scope, is there would be areas in their body that would be extremely lit. Like for example, when you get into a hip hinge and gathering and loading your backside, that area there would be really, really bright. Other areas would be a little bit less dim because you're starting to store energy. You're starting to get that potential energy to build. As that fires, those lights are gonna start to climb their way up. Like the kinetic energy is gonna start to work its way up the kinetic chain and you'll start to see different areas light up. You'll start to see the back hip. Then you'll start to see like the front side light up. That way you're not pulling off, right? So you're going to start to get that that activation on the front side to stabilize. And eventually it'll just light up to where it all converges onto the baseball. Why why is it though that you have them do a lot of positions on, on the ground versus standing up since they're going to be standing up when they're actually playing? Like how did you come uh, up with, with, with doing that? Well, what I found is if you study developmental kinesiology and, and dynamic neuromuscular stabilization theories, what they do is they use the ground to to teach that sequencing. 
right? Because if I'm standing and I don't have the ground to stabilize my front side when I turn, the front side on a lot of those players won't turn on when they get up and start moving. You know, the players that are flying off and their front shoulders flying open, the ground does a great job of teaching them that sequencing and that timing of guess what? When you're about to turn, there has to be stability here so you get the movement on the backside, right? I can't move this backside when I hit if this front side's starting to fly open. So when you use the ground, you're building that timing, you're building that sequencing, you're building that stabilization on that side when you actually turn and then you, you kind of lift yourself from the ground. So a couple of weeks ago, I, I put a, a thread out about using the ground, lower body mechanics. It was something to that extent. And I talked about the importance of, of using the ground as a hitter. And, you know, there's there's two ways to think about it. Like you, you're using the, the ground. That's more important. And that helps improve movement or you're moving through the middle of your body, too. Right. And, and that helps improve movement as well. And we could go back and forth, I guess, on that. I mean, you kind of need both. It's hard to get even get into the box if you're not using the ground, unless you want to start um, with uh, in a pretzel style position sitting down. So you have to use the ground. But what is more important is using the ground or is it moving through the middle of your body? I think for me, it's a combination, right, Patrick? It's one of those that I wouldn't say one's better than the other. I think if you once you get that combination of both, working efficiently and working maximal effort or maximal force, then that's when you get something special, right? Because I think sometimes we have a tendency of looking of ground forces just up and down, right? Mm -hmm. Ground up, but there's actually left side to right side. There's a lot of leaking that happens like from your backside to your front side. And then there's back and forth force or um, forces that you'll gather also, right? Where you can have leaking going forward and going back. So I think this model of like, hey, guess what? We can only develop it from the ground straight up to the, it's kind of a, a like a linear model that we're looking at, but realistically, the way the body moves is left to right, back and forth, up and down. And the more you can contain the energy and not leak in all those uh, areas, the better you're gonna, the more power you're gonna get. That's when you get like uh, hitters that are 140 hitting the ball 450, is those guys are able to combine everything left to right, up and down, back and forth, and able to converge it all into one powerful move. Glad, I'm really glad you brought that up because I've asked a couple other people on the podcast before, some some uh, guys in strength conditioning about, you know, let's just take, for example, like a, a Mookie Betts or you know somebody like that who is not a big guy, but yet he has power. Clearly, he's got power, especially compared to just the average player out there who's his size. And when when I asked when I've asked different strength conditioning guys in the past about that, I know you're not in that necessarily category. You're you do a lot more than just that for sure. But uh, they just they kind of chalked it up as he's just a freak of nature. Not necessarily you can teach that. You can't teach someone 170, 180 pounds to be able to hit a ball, you know, 430 feet. And so I guess what what you're saying is you can help them teach that through moving better. Yeah, 100%. But Buki Betts is a freak of nature because he can do it all and he does converge really well. Uh, and there's also other things genetically that he's gifted with, right? But I always tell people when you look at people like Mookie Betts, you're looking at the one percenters, right? So for me, I work with the 99 percenters where I go like, hey, guess what? We're going to have to be somewhat really, really, I wouldn't say perfect, but very efficient with how we do things in order to get to that next level. You know, it's 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 one of those where I go like I work with that that population that's just about to get there and or it's there, but they're very inconsistent. 
And what we're trying to build that consistency is, is we attack it just from different angles. What's the been the best case uh, example you've had where someone has started doing movement flows, your program, and you it, it just completely has changed their in-game performance? Like, is there anybody in like a, a college, for example, or a particular player who um, has just, it's it's clicked for them? I mean, just the light switch went on, they started moving better, and it's just, it's changed the trajectory of their career. We've had several, you know, I think I've had some that actually surprised me because, you know, we do a movement screening. So they send me a video at the beginning of the year and then we kind of track them to as the months go on. Um, and it's one of those where I didn't expect it. But when the when the coach saw him back in, in into the games, he started to know, like, I don't know about what you did with this person, but his bat speed is through the roof in the game. And the wow. coach said that he could notice the difference on how he's moving. And it was one of those where I don't tell coaches, like, unless they ask me, I don't tell them about specific players, like, oh, this player is doing the program, that player is not doing the program. Uh, so then I went back, and that was the player that was doing the program more consistently. And and it was it was interesting because that got into instant buy-in from the coach because he was able to see it on the field and say, hey, guess what, I don't know what you did with this one player, but uh, he's coming back a totally different person from last year. Something that I, that I see at times is like is the older players get, the harder it is to change their their movement patterns. I mean, some guys, it's like, man, when you're 24, 25 years old and you've been moving a certain way your entire life for the last 20 plus years, it's 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 hard to change that. Is there a, a point in time when it's like, man, it, these it, it's it's almost impossible to to change someone's movement pattern just because they've been doing it a certain way for for thousands and thousands and thousands of reps? Yeah, it's hard. I'm not gonna lie. I think some of these uh, players that have been in the like MLB for a while that reached out. Uh, I think for me, it's two things. It's not just the movement patterns. It's now their structure, right? Their anatomy has adapted to those movements, and then now it becomes very difficult to say, hey, guess what? Like you're lacking tons of internal rotation. You're lacking tons of movement in this hip. And for me, it's one of those where you go like, all right, well, let's improve the efficiency of the rest of the body, right? Because we're not going to battle a, stru a structural um, component. But I think those are probably the tougher ones where you go like, you know what? We have a structure change now. And that's going to be difficult to change a pattern because now the structure is actually the one that's blocking us from getting or kind of emerging any kind of movement patterns. Also, yeah, the ones that have been doing it for a long time, uh, those are a little difficult, but and you know what? The great thing about the brain is that it's very plastic. You know, we start feeding it the right patterns. We start flowing different, and then it starts to kind of emerge some of these ingrained patterns that we had when we were kids. Uh, so it's one of those where I think if, if it doesn't become a structural problem, uh, the movement itself, uh, I found that neuroplasticity or that kind of uh, changes in the brain are really beneficial. How long does it take for those players to make those changes for them to show up in the game? Like I know you said you had had major league players reach out to you. How long does it take for for them to to do it and then actually see it transpire on the field? Some of them real quick. Some of them, I mean, within the first week of of trying it, they were already moving better, hinging better, everything we looked for. Uh, but at the same time, I think with anything else, it's consistency, right? It's it's some of these guys they get us something that works. And then they they go out and they search for another thing, and then now they're doing something else, or they're talking to another hitting coach, or they're it's like there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen when you get to the oh, yeah. uh, major league guys. So it's one of those that it's hard for them to actually just stick to a program, stick to it, even when they get changes. Uh, there, there's always things or things that worked for them in the past. A lot of them will just go back to 
hey, guess what? Strength training, power training worked for me. So let me just go back in there and start hammering away. Uh, when clearly they're not moving well, when clearly they're struggling with just developmental patterns. Uh, but it's one of those that when the younger guys and, and, and also the high school guys, college guys stick to it, those are the ones that I think are able to, to be more consistent and more, be more of a team doing it. I like that. Uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. I, I think I like that phrase that you <laughs> use. That was that was good. And you're you're so right on that for sure. If anything, there's yep. too many people in professional baseball. Um, when I when I look at your program, so one of the things that that I do is I'll do uh, some a dynamic type of warm up before I start lifting, and then I'll do a static stretch of you know hips, quads, uh, hamstrings after I get done working out. Is static stretching after you get done playing still the optimal way to go or no? Well, for me, it's, it's, I think you can stretch with the flows, right? Okay. I think you can move through flows. I think you could get the stretching, the flexibility, the movements that you need after you've worked out. And, and, and it's one of those where I think static stretching is starting to lose a lot of ground here. Um, just because there's been some science that, that you could, can you really change the structure? Can you really, deform it enough to make any kind of change. Now, for me, I've always dealt with two things when I look at something like that. I always think, can I clinically reason through it? Can I figure it out? Can I use some science, some, some evidence base and go like, hey, guess what? This 100% makes sense to me clinically. Then also look at it just common sense, right? Well, I was like, hey, guess what, Patrick? Do you feel great after you do it? How does it feel? Are there some changes with your static stretching? How, how, does, that, how does that play into your flow? And it's one of those that I never rule anything out because for me, there's always that common sense of like, if it's working for you, even if it's not scientific, even if it's not proven, even if there's not tons of things like that, that, that we look for is, I don't know. I, I always have a tendency of going like, Hey, if it's going to make you feel better and flow better and move better, then static stretching might not be the worst thing, but there are better things. What's something that you see that, that people do that hurts their in-game performance that they're doing before the game? Like, would it be that they just simply static stretching, not warming up enough? Like, what's something that you see over time that, that players do or, or teams implement that hurts players' performance and you're pretty confident it does? Well, I think for me, one, like I mentioned, just the clinical route, I always look at things that way, and then I look at common sense. For me, it's when they do one joint stretching. So if they're stretching their shoulder, if they're stretching joints that are clearly already mobile, where you go like, okay, that player could literally pull his arm all the way back behind his head, all the way back behind his back, just tons of movement and they're stretching the shoulder. Then you're starting to look at, okay, are we creating an inefficiency? Are we making that shoulder so lax that when there's energy coming to it, like there's no power? Like there is no power or no co-contractions to be able to transfer the force that it needs into the elbow, into the, to the, into the baseball. Because at that point for me is, is we're opening the, the door for injuries, right? We're opening the doors for like, Hey, there's energy coming and there's nowhere there or no muscles there to be able to transfer it. Now we're looking at structures that shouldn't be transferring force, uh, getting a lot of force placed on them. Uh, well, I think that's when I see the static stretching that becomes an issue before games or even as a warm-up, where you where you kind of there's a Goldilocks zone, right? There's a Goldilocks zone you want to be in where you go like you don't want to stretch or, or move too much on that sense because we are creating what we call just passive weakness. 
What about on the on deck circle? There's I did a podcast uh, with the guys at the Baseball Performance Lab uh, down at Marucci, and they they had some interesting stuff that they were toying with on on deck circle. There's been teams that I've heard who when players are in the hole, they'll actually have them do like in the big leagues, they'll, they'll do some trap bar deadlifts. They'll do some different medicine ball things um, just to get the body firing and, and being explosive. What are your thoughts on using the, the time on deck or in the hole to get the player ready to, to swing the bat and be as explosive as they can when they step in the box? For me, I think, and that might be a little biased, right? But I think eventually I would like to see a baseball flow, in the on-deck circle, right, where a player is going through their swing and they're going through the patterns and they're they're working on, on the activation, they're working on the sequencing. Uh, but at the end of the day, as you know, I mean, hitters on the on-deck circle, a lot of it is mental too. So it's one of those that I do want them focusing also on the pitcher, timing, looking at all that stuff, right? Because on-deck circle for me is always valuable time to gather information about that bat and to get yourself in the mental zone for things like that. But as far as movement, I mean, I think a baseball flow would work, but I, but I think also what you mentioned, right, is maybe uh, sometimes the medicine ball, I'll be honest with you, sometimes the movement patterns with the medicine balls are not like that great, right? Mm. You know, it's just based on how much weight you're using, how the player organizes to it. Because what I find sometimes with medicine balls is that the shoulder just flies open on the front side, either because it's too heavy or they're just doing like this, like bailing out on it. So it's one of those where it's tricky because I see it all the time on, on social media where I go like, yeah, that medicine ball, I don't know if it's detrimental to their movement as far as the baseball swing. So I think people do, well, I don't know exactly why people do a lot of the medicine ball stuff, but I'm sure some of the train of thought is, is, is it's going to help with rotation, right? Ro rotating. Do, do you buy into that if they do it correctly? Or is that there's, there's no real evidence for that? Well, I think rotation is tricky, right? Because when we discuss rotation, there's there's different types of rotation and then there's different areas where rotation should occur. And then there's timing for your rotation also, right? So I think for me, it's one of those where if we're doing a lot of medicine ball toss and we're going east and west, sometimes that type of rotation is what we call like twisting. And just clinically twisting for me is a lot of shearing force on your back, on your low back, a lot of shearing force on areas that, that become injured over time. So it's one of those that we would just have to figure out how they, they – it's not like you give somebody a medicine ball and go, like, just throw it against the wall. <laughs> I think – right? I think it's one of those where you go, like, hey, hold on. We have to make sure that the weight is right because the baseball swing is a very unique movement. And sometimes when we add too much weight to that specific movement, we end up training something that you go, like, hey, hold on. This is actually an inefficiency that we're training movement-wise for a movement pattern. So like I mentioned before, I think we need we need to kind of straddle that Goldilocks zone of how much do we want to ramp up the system, but how much also are we working with the movement quality and making sure that we're not building corrupt movement patterns. That's a that's a great point because in the base you take so many swings as is, so you're already technically rotating that east and west as you said earlier there. I mean, so many times, thousands of times, and so to add on more stress with the medicine ball and, and constantly doing that, that could lead to injury. So yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. What about kettlebells? I know we talked a little bit the other day on the phone about using kettlebells to help with movement flows. What are your thoughts on, on using those in season off season? Um, just, I'd like, I think it'd be beneficial for people to hear 
your take on using kettlebells with movement flows? I think for me is, is I've always been intrigued by movement and I've also been intrigued by not trying to give people or not trying to tell people how to move. Right. I've always, that's always been my biggest thing is sometimes I feel like I almost feel like I'm not smart enough to be able to figure out exactly how someone should move, but I do trust the brain and the nervous system to be able to figure it out if I provide the right exercise or the right movement. So for me, kettlebell is one of those, right? Where I feel like just the kettlebell itself, like, people organize their body really well when they start loading it with a kettlebell and, and in going through these flows, going through these movements, the kettlebell and the weight and how it approximates everything for some reason gets people into very efficient patterns. Uh, sometimes I don't see that like with a, with a bar or certain things or even a dumbbell, right? Things that we use in the gym, but with the kettlebell, I've always been intrigued by it. And I, I also had a coworker that did all this, uh, he did extensive training in kettlebell. And I remember every every lunch he would work out and I would always look at his patterns and I would have these discussions with him as far as like, oh, that's kettlebell workouts. But then I also started to look at, and that makes a lot of sense for baseball. Like the patterns he's moving and the way he's, he's tilting, the way he's creating the side bend, the way he's holding it, the way he's stabilizing. And I was like, uh, every time I would look at him, I was like, I don't see those movements in the gym. Mm -hmm. and, and then he always had a saying too. He would say, um, these forearms were built by kettlebells and he just had like the biggest forearms uh, you could ever imagine. So it's always kind of stuck in my head where, where, where I used to see him flow and do his movements. And I said, you know what? The kettlebell is actually a real good uh, tool uh, to utilize. Earlier, just going back to what we talked about earlier, we, you mentioned that movement screens. And so you have players um, film themselves and send them via movement screen what kind of movement screen are you having them do? Is it similar to the uh, on base U TPI type of movement screen? And like, wh what does that tell you? Like what, what, what do you give them that's different based on their movement screen? So usually for me, the movement screen is just getting up from the ground with y'all using your hands. So, really? so there's a video that they'll do. I keep it very simple because I'm trying to look at the entire movement. I'm trying to look at the nervous system I'm not just looking at the hip by itself, right? Because sometimes we make that mistake. When we do a screening, we, we break things apart. We break the ankle apart into an ankle. What is the ankle doing? What's the hip doing? What's the shoulder doing? And sometimes it's hard to figure out, guess what? We screened it, but how does it play into the hole, right? Just because there's something going on in the hip doesn't mean it's not playing well into the whole movement. So for me, I felt like if I was going to do a screening, I would do the whole movement and then figure out how's your hip and your core and your shoulder and your thoracic and everything we look at in like a movement screen, like on base U, and how's that playing into the whole movement, the entire flow? Now, I also tell coaches that they could check and, and use those screenings also to figure out, hey, guess what? Are the flows making any changes at that one single joint? Okay, I understand. Yeah, I think it's, it, it's unique because the, the traditional movement screen is – um, you know, there's so many different variables, right? Like, I mean, what were you doing before you did the movement screen? Did you just get done playing a game? Did you not? And I think, you know, it's pretty interesting that your version of a movement screen is just watching them get up from the ground without using their hands, which I think is pretty cool. And it's pretty scalable in the sense that players can literally be anywhere and, and do that. Yeah, exactly. I've actually had, I've been, I was at a conference and I'm not going to say the name of the movement screen, but it was interesting that the kid could not get up from the ground, right? And then they went and tried a movement screen that's out there that's, that you mentioned. 
and they 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 passed that movement screen. So all their movements and all their joints were functioning optimal. Their extension, everything they were doing was like, yeah, look, they they did really well on a lot of these things. All the movements they were looking for, they did fairly well. But that that player could not transition from the ground, and they couldn't get up from the ground without using their hands. Why do you think that was? Well, I think it's the neuromuscular system, right? The nervous system is that they just they they could actually just naturally have fairly good movement, fairly good isolated movement. But when they have to organize it all together and when they have to get their left knee to function with their right shoulder and when they have to stabilize and mobilize and do all these things we mentioned before as far as sequencing and timing and manipulating energy, right? Once they got to get into that sense, their nervous system just has no idea on how to do it, how to do it efficiently, how to do it with some power and strength. But isolated and, and by one joint, they're able to actually, they're like athletic enough to be able to do those things. That's interesting. What would you say the majority? Go ahead. Were you going to say something? No. I was just saying, like, what, what would you say on average, how many players on a team uh, move well, move like in, like, would you say baseball flows, like move and flow versus players on a team who, who need to improve significantly on their, their flow, their movement? I think uh, I think it actually changes, to be honest with you, right? I think there's going to be players that are flowing well, and you see it because you go like, this guy's raking right now, and the other guys are slumping. And then all of a sudden, it flip-flops, right, where you go like, hey, hold on, this guy's starting to turn it around, and now the other guy can't find home plate for no reason. So it's one of those that I think people always think that we we are always operating with the same body. But as the season goes on, we see it all the time, right? There's guys that hit 400 in April every year. And then in June, they're they're hitting 190. And vice versa, right? They'll hit 190 in, in April, and then they'll hit 400 in August. But is that is that because of their movement or because mentally they're not? I mean, there's so many factors that, and mm-hmm. as you well know, I mean, you played professional baseball. I mean, they, they could be a situation in their personal life that could be hurting them too on the field, right? There's so many factors that go into that. Um, so it's hard to just solely pinpoint why they're having success or why they're not having success I guess my my question mainly just was when you watch players in general, like on a team on, on average, how many do you think would greatly benefit from doing something like movement flows? Like I would 50%. think if you ask me, I think, I and mean, then you brought up a great point. I'm glad you, you brought it back to that, right? As far as the on field, I think as a professional, I've never taken credit for players' uh, success. I just go like, hey, you know what? There's so many things that play into it. I remember in, in minor league baseball, I remember like uh, she's my wife now, but my girlfriend back then broke up with me and I hit like 400 the remainder of the season. And it was literally and she's your that, wife now. Yeah, she's my wife. Yeah, she you know, when she broke up with me, it was the, like the all star game. Like I, it was the first time I ever became an all star and she was coming out for the all star game. And, and she's like, oh, you know what? Uh, and she had that whole conversation of like not working out. Maybe I shouldn't go out there. And, and she didn't come out. But after the after that All Star game, I think I had that's the year I hit 340 in the Florida State League. Yeah. Uh, but I think I hit 400 the second half, which had nothing to do with my movement. It just had to do with guess what? I was either heartbroken. I just all I had to focus on was baseball. Uh, so it's one of those like you mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned that that there is a lot of things that go into it. But as far as players, I, I think I mean I don't think there's not a player that wouldn't benefit from it. Right. It's it's one of those where I think that if you calibrate your movements, you get your sequencing right. 
uh, it's one of those that is just invaluable. I mean, it's going to help one guy 10%. It might help another guy 50%. That probably might be the biggest difference, right? Yeah. But I think yeah, at the end of the day. Yeah. We're just trying to help players get a little bit better. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, yeah, that's the main thing. At least that's what I try to do too. Like being able to make these massive jumps is pretty improbable. You really don't see that a lot, especially on the hitting side anyway, maybe more so on the pitching side. So just trying to get guys a little bit better. Um, so did your, did your wife want to get back or your now wife want to get back with you after she saw you hit 400 in the Florida state league? And she's like, Oh, this guy's might be something pretty good. I need to, I need to hit, hit him up again. You know what? I never asked her that question. I, I think what I, I maybe I think what it, she said that when I got back from the off season, it was hard to be around me all the time and not be with me. So that's when she realized like, uh, but she, I think she might've mentioned one time where she's like, I think he's going to make it to the big leagues and, and she wanted to be there to see it. Uh, but obviously she stuck around because eventually I didn't make it and she didn't leave. So it was one of those. That's funny. <laughs> she definitely wasn't in it just for that, man. That's funny. What about uh, going back to movement and, and baseball flows? What about pitchers? We've been talking a lot about hitters and, and how their movements affected. What have you noticed from pitchers doing this? I think pitchers seem to even benefit more. Oh, really? Right from it. Yeah, and I don't know if it's one of those two that uh, pitchers are also more consistent. Right? I mean, they have more downtime than hitters, and, and they kind of able to do a lot of these movements a lot more and more consistently. But I found that a lot of these guys, I mean, their their command improved, also their velocity improved in a lot of these teams. And it's one of those for me that I we actually it's interesting because I just got done talking to a coach that other day, and, and they had some players go down with some significant injuries. But I also realized that some of those players were not really on the program 100%. Mm. So it's interesting, right, where you go like, hey, guess what? We only have so many arms on the team. And if we could kind of get some flow and some movement, some fluidity, and actually decrease the risk of those significant injuries, uh, those are game changers, right? I mean, you get three or four pitchers going down that are your top guys. Uh, I think that changes your whole season. What are the common flaws you see in pitchers when they're when they're actually pitching? Like, where do you see their movement breaking down at? Uh, they're all a little different. You know, I think when I look at big movements for pitchers, there's usually direction, just like anything else. I think that's that's something that we look at, at least for myself, is I look at direction, I look at flow, I look at how well they're able to hold certain transitions. Uh, so for me, but trust me, there's also guys that don't hold them very well that never get hurt and are, that are just out there pitching their butts off all the time. So I just look at bigger movements. I try not to narrow down. Remember we discussed earlier, is I'm not trying to be biased to one move, yeah, one area. I'm looking at the entire sequence, the entire timing. And it's one of those that um, that's probably the biggest thing is they, they also, some of them will do movements that are just really, really hard to time for anybody. Wait, wait say that again. Oh, movements. Some, some of them will kind of prefer movements that are really, really difficult to time. So they're either late or or early on their timing. They're rotating too soon, rotating too late. It's just one of those that and then their direction's off. Now they're having to do something to compensate for that movement. Uh, so that's usually what I look for is I just look for bigger inefficiencies. Does it matter at all if, if maybe just this is probably more geared towards hitting, but if you watch someone like Alex Bregman, or and then you watch like another hitter, like I don't know, just JD Martinez, just throw a name out there. If you look at like Bregman, like he seems to create more horizontal force where his his belt buckle is really just going east and west versus like a JD Martinez or a lot of majority of hitters, they're creating that more vertical force 
where their belt buckle is going more north-south. It's going more straight up and down into contact. Does that matter at all in terms of how they go about doing your program, like baseball flows? Does it, does it matter if they create more force horizontally versus vertically? Well, I, I think for me, is I, I've always seen myself as a designer, right? I design exercise. I design environments for them to explore and move and self-organize their body and learn the timing, the sequencing, whatever works for them. I, I always think that just like we all like different foods, right? We all like, we all have different tastes. I think we all have a different movement signature and, and it's not one of those that I'm, I'm thinking, Oh, this is for people to develop vertical force, horizontal force. I go, this is for people to maximize their force output as far as timing and sequencing and being able to take that into the baseball field and just be consistent with it. But for me, it's a, that for me, it's kind of irrelevant where I go like, you know what the player will, will organize. And like I mentioned, I trust their neural, their neural system to be able to figure that out more than me trying to ingrain it in them. Gotcha. Where do you see baseball flows going in the future? Well, I see it going many different directions, you know, because I, I mean, I've had so many different opportunities. I think J bands with Jager bands trying to, we're trying to develop a warm up where they could actually use the bands for the warm up. I've also gone back and forth with uh, Lance Wheeler, core velocity belt, maybe develop some flows with that. I'm also looking maybe into um, this this summer, we're gonna develop a summer program, summer flows, just to unlock, see if we could get some of that potential agility athleticism where it's gonna be more flow driven. Uh, and then we're also gonna have our, our program that we do with teams and then potentially grow that into travel ball teams, high schools. Um, I think it's gonna go in so many different directions. I mean, for lack of a better word, I'm just trying to go with the flow. And, and, then, and then the biggest thing for me is just building relationships. Sure. I mean, I, my biggest thing has always been that I want I want to speak to these coaches. I want to speak to as many players as I can. I want to get as much feedback. I mean, my biggest thing is I, I love baseball. I love the community. I love softball. And my biggest thing has always been to make the biggest impact, the biggest difference. Um, money is whatever, man. I don't know. I, I, I've never had money in my life. So it's one of those where I just see it as like, if it comes, it comes. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I'm happy either way. But for me, when I make an impact, when I get teams and like an entire team that buys in, that's probably what gives me the most joy is, is when I could get teams and players just to buy in and go like, hey, guess what? We all have the same problems, right? Like there's a lot of similarities on the problems these players face out on the baseball field or softball field. And it's one of those that I've just given them a different option or solution to be able to solve those problems on those fields. Yeah, and from from my standpoint, going off of what you just said right there, for I'm a team setting, and even just me, more so in the private side, if if we can get these players to move the right way at a young age, it's gonna make their life so much easier the older that they get, because now we can really focus on the important things and hitting, like you know, talking about the mental side of the game and things like that, versus having to figure out how to get them to move better when they've been moving wrong for the last 10 years. So if you just start kids out the right way, oh my gosh, it's going to make their lives so much easier. So I guess what I'm saying is if you're a high school coach out there or younger, I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't do this program. Like it's, it's, it's only going to help and it's just going to help players move better, play better, have more fun because they're playing better. Um, I do though, I do have a couple more questions for you and I'm going to put you on the spot here. So one, my first question is, I know you said before a couple of times that 
you know, you don't want to be biased on, you know, one particular thing in, in the swing or uh, watching mechanics on the mound. But if you had to pick, what's the most important body part, in your opinion, for movement flows? Is it the core? Is it the hips? Is it hamstrings? Like what, if you had to pick one, what would it be? Man, you are putting me on the spot here. Hold on. <laughs> and we get tons of messages on like, why didn't you say spinal this? Um, for me, I think it's the hips. I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's it's one of those. If I was ever going to become biased, I think that posterior hip and really loading it and that flow of just holding it, holding that potential energy, right? That is a game changer for so many players. You know, as far as hitting, um, I mean, you, how, how many adjustments can you make when you hold that flow and you hold that tension yeah. and you just hold, I mean, think about it, Patrick, right? Is, I don't know, it's, it's even for me as a hitter, when I look back, I was like, man, that was my go-to, right? It's just holding that backside as I, I transitioned and not have this many negative moves and all this sway. If I could just hold that and hold it and hold it and hold it and then explode, I think for me, if I was ever going to be biased, I think it, it would be that. And it's, and it's one of those where, Man, that's the that's the first move. That's kind of the driver, right? That you're able to hold into getting into a, a real good attack attack position. Love it, back hip. Love it. All right, that's what that's Doctor Gallo's favorite thing is going to be the back. Hip. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, man. Side I know, up. I know. I'm just, I just, I was just curious. But my okay, final question for you. So, uh, coach, there's a coach listening to this, and he has he has a son. His son's six, seven years old. And his son says, I want to play in the major league someday. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Can you help me? What would you outline from 6 to 10, 10 to 14? Is it is it movement flows from 6 to 10? And then once he gets to 10, we start doing some functional strength and then lifting at 13. Like what would be the, the progression if you could do any type of program you wanted for a six-year-old, for some coach out there who's six-year-old wants to play in the major leagues to get them ready by the time they're 18, 19 years old to get drafted? I think exactly what you mentioned, right? Okay. It's it's one of those where you want to you get those developmental patterns and you want to keep them ingrained in them. But I just wouldn't do baseball flows. I would also allow them to explore, like explore movements. You know, let, let them go out on the, on the jump and do monkey bars and do whatever they want to do as a six, seven-year-old. Also, even with baseball, right, is make it fun for them. Have them explore different swings, different movements, uh, different positions, just different flows that they could do. I think at that age, you're really just trying to ingrain just overall just movement quality and exploration, right? It's it's one of those where you, I also don't want them to limit them just to baseball flows at the home and go like, oh, you're good, right? It's There's a lot more to it where you go allow them to be free movers and give them the freedom to do that from 6 to 10 to 11. And then after that, once they start to kind of get into puberty and get a little bit stronger, then you can start to load them up a little bit, right? Is is one of those where, but for me, it's always, you always got to manage their load also. Because I feel like right now, that's probably one of the biggest things is that these kids are competing a lot and that's heavy load, heavy stress. So it's one of those that you also don't want to add uh, exercise or movements outside of that. Uh, ideally, my thing would be is probably less competitive, less stress on that end and more on the movement flow and, and other things that are going to load them up where you can actually control it a little bit better as far as how much they're loading their body. And then as you get into 14, 15, I would say, keep, keep getting strength, keep getting in the gym, keep hitting the weights hard, but also make sure that you're all still doing your movement flows. So we're not just building now gym patterns. 
we're building patterns that actually are bridging it into the baseball moves that we need. Love it. Great stuff. As always, Dr. Gallo, appreciate you coming on. Where, if someone wants to learn more, where can they connect with you? Easiest way is our website, www.baseballflows.com. Uh, I'm always on Twitter too. So if they go to Flows Doc, they'll always find me on there. Uh, they can message me, DM me, or they can send them as they can send us a message. Also on the website, you're able to message me directly also. And it goes through our email. Uh, at this point, I answer every email. I'm the one that's looking at everything. So it's one of those that I, I don't want to lose that because I, I really want to stay connected to the community, especially, I mean, we're a fairly young company, so it's one of those where I can still do it. Uh, that's probably the last thing I'm probably going to give out, you know, is because I, li I like speaking with coaches. My biggest thing is, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I just love baseball people. I love softball yeah. people. I mean, I'm, I'm addicted to those type of people because I feel like we all speak a common language. And, and it's one of those where we all have an understanding of what it takes to be successful out on the field. And, uh, I've just had some great conversations in the past. Good stuff. Dr. Gal, appreciate it. We're recording this on Mother's Day. So thank your wife for letting you come on the podcast on Mother's Day. Yeah, I know. I had to celebrate with her yesterday. So it's one of <laughs> <laughs> So she was, yeah, hey, that's, I'm telling you, that's why we got back together. I think she was worth it, you know? Absolutely. Appreciate you coming on. All right. Thank you. We got it again.